If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. She is me. What? Written onto the wax. She is me. Look at this. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Elegy. X-File number classified. The plot. Angie Pintero, the owner of a bowling alley, tells one of his employees that an autistic man named Harold Spuler to go home for the evening. Shortly thereafter, Angie discovers a badly injured blonde girl wedged inside of the automatic pin setter. The girl attempts to speak out, but no words come out of her mouth. Angie notices police in a nearby parking lot and rushes outside to get help. He realizes a crowd has gathered around the dead body of the same girl he saw only moments earlier in the bowling alley. Angie relates his bizarre story to Mulder and Scully. Mulder suspects that Angie encountered the dead girl's ghost. Three similar encounters and three similar murders were reported in the area in as many weeks. The agents discover the words, She is me written on the bowling lane where Angie saw the spirit, but its meaning remains a mystery. What is that look, Scully? I would have thought that after four years, you know exactly what that look was. Well, you don't believe in ghosts? You're saying that what this man saw was the victim's ghost? It sounds more like a disembodied soul. Which is just another name for a ghost, huh? Except according to Mr. Pintero, this one was trying to communicate. Was speaking to him as if she was trying to tell him something. It sounds more like a, uh, a death omen. A death omen? Yeah. It's a spirit being that arrives as a harbinger of death. This is the third reported sighting in as many weeks and as many murders. Each time the victim appearing near the crime scene trying to communicate, trying to say something. Communicate what? I don't know yet, but uh, thank you. If you hold on a second, I may have an answer for you. Hey, what are you doing? She is me. What? Written onto the wax. She is me. Look at this. Detective Hudak tells Mulder and Scully that an anonymous caller phoned 911 with a message regarding Penny Timmons, one of the killer's victims. The caller claimed that Timmons' last words were, She is me. Hudak notes, however, that the victim's larynx was severed, making it impossible for her to utter dying words. The agents trace the source of the 911 call to a payphone at the New Horizons Psychiatric Center. 
Mulder notices one of the patients, Harold Spuler, avoiding his gaze. After viewing photographs of the murder victims, Scully comes to the conclusion that Spuler fits the killer's profile. A compulsive person consumed with the desire to organize, clean, and reorder. Harold Spuler suffers from pervasive developmental disorder, which is sometimes called atypical autism. He has spent his entire life in and out of facilities just like this one. He has been medicated, he has received shock therapy, and aside from his other disabilities, he has been diagnosed with severe egodystonic obsessive compulsive disorder, which would explain the switching of the victim's rings. So why all of a sudden? You mean what made him snap? Well, I, th I think his outburst clearly showed a frustrated impulse towards violence when he was put in a challenging situation. That outburst didn't come until after I'd asked him if he'd ever seen a ghost. Mulder, the man is disturbed. You, you could see the pressure building in him from the moment the interview began. Yeah. Why are you now so unconvinced that Harold Spuler is the man we came here looking for? I'm sure Harold Spuler is the man that made that phone call, but what led us to him is still remains unexplained. She is me. Mm -hmm. The other apparitions, like the one Mr. Pintero saw at the bowling alley. Well, I think I have an idea about that, if not an explanation. Harold Spuler is at this facility voluntarily, which means he can come and go as he pleases to kill those women, or to hold down a job, or both. Oh, Scully. Yeah, it's okay. You sure? Yeah, it's just, um, I'm fine. I just need to find a washroom. Scully's nose begins to bleed and uses a restroom where she sees the words she is me written in blood on the mirror she also encounters the spirit of another blonde girl moments later Mulder tells her that the body of yet another victim was found nearby her name was lauren heller age 21 she's single apparently she was on her way home from a bar that she part-timed at after school she had a ring on her left hand and switched to her right hand pinky finger she was dead less than an hour when she was found. That would rule out Harold Spuler as a killer, huh? No, actually, it doesn't. Harold's not at the home. He's nowhere to be found. His nurse locked him in his room after we left, but he managed to escape unnoticed. I don't imagine he'd be too hard to find. Yeah, but I think we should be the ones to find him, if only to find out what she is me means. Mulder, I... What? I think I'm going to let you take care of that. I, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to get this checked out, just, you know, just to be safe. You want me to drive you? No, 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 I'm, I'm fine, really. I've, I've had the doctors keep a close watch, and it's just, just precaution. You're sure? I'm fine. Later, Mulder discovers Harold in a room accessible from the bowling alley. The walls outside the room are covered with score sheets, including those of the victims. Mulder realizes that Harold met each of the murdered women at the bowling alley. Suddenly, Harold lapses into a strange seizure. From his point of view, he sees Angie's ghost standing behind Mulder. He rushes out of the room and makes his way to the bowling alley, where Angie lies dead, the victim of a heart attack. Mulder tells Scully that every person who saw the apparitions was about to die implying that Harold may be next. Scully, who also saw a victim's ghost, is struck by the implication. Harold Spieler had a premonitory vision of his boss's death. I don't understand. Harold saw an apparition, what may have been Angie Pintero's disembodied soul at the moment of or just prior to his death. 
How do you know? Because I was standing right there when he saw it. But you didn't see it yourself? No. Why? I don't have that facility, that, that kind of connection to the victims that would have made such a vision possible. What's Harold Spieler's connection? I don't know its exact nature, but I think it has something to do with his autism. That Harold experienced a profound attachment to these victims, but because of his disability was unable to express the depth and power of those relationships. So somehow a psychic or pre-conscious bond was formed that went beyond the temporal. Wait a minute, says Harold knew the people that were killed? Yeah, from the bowling alley, going back seven years. Even if what you're saying is true, Harold wasn't the only one who claims to have seen these apparitions. No, but he, he does have something in common with those who had the visions that is quite powerful in its own right. Which is what? Well, they were all dying. Harold is transported back to the psychiatric center where he's tormented by Nurse Innes. Later, Mulder finds Innes lying on the floor, half-conscious, Innes claims Harold went berserk and attacked her. One of the other patients, Chuck Forsh, tells Scully that Nurse Innes was trying to poison Harold. Oh, hi. Is your name Chuck? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Chuck Forsh. F-O-R-S-C-H. Chuck Forsh. Do you, uh, you share this room with Harold? Yes, he, he's my friend. Do you know where he is? He's dying, isn't he? Harold is dying. Why do you say that? Narcissus, she's, she's trying to poison him. Who told you that? Harold. He said she told him she was putting poison in his meds. Harold hasn't been taking his medication? I don't know. I don't know everything. I'm only a human being. But I do know that that Harold's my friend. He wouldn't hurt anybody. You know, he really loved them. Who? Harold. He, he, He gave them to me. He was afraid. Does anybody else know about these pictures, Chuck? Nurse Innes. Scully slowly realizes that Innes, not Harold, was responsible for the murders. When Innes attacks Scully with a scalpel, Scully draws her weapon and fires, striking Innes in the shoulder. While summarizing the case with Mulder, Scully explains that Innes had been ingesting Harold's medication, triggering violent and unpredictable behavior. Scully hypothesizes that Innes committed the murders in order to destroy the love Harold felt for the young women. Later, Harold's body is discovered in a nearby alley, the apparent victim of respiratory failure. Scully, however, suspects that Harold died from what Innes took away from him. Scully admits to Mulder that she saw the ghost of the fourth victim shortly after she was murdered. I saw something, Mulder. What? The fourth victim. I saw her in the bathroom before you came to tell me. Why didn't you tell me? Because I didn't want to believe it. Because I don't want to believe it. Is that why you came down here to prove that it wasn't true? No, I came down here because you asked me to. Why can't you be honest with me? What do you want me to say? That you're right? That that I believe it even if I don't? I mean, is that what you want? Is that what you think I want to hear? No. You can believe what you want to believe, Scully. 
But you can't hide the truth from me because if you do, then you're working against me and yourself. I know what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of the same thing. The doctor said I was fine. I hope that's the truth. I'm going home. Later, Scully sees Harold's spirit sitting in the back seat of her car. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Elegy. Elegy was never one of my favorite episodes, but on the rewatch, I really did like it. I guess my favorite part of it is always whenever something links into the mythology, which this isn't a mythology episode, obviously, but when you see Scully's nosebleed, that's a direct link to the mythology because that's letting us know that her cancer is still there and without giving out too many spoilers, it's definitely part of the mythology. So just a simple nosebleed from Scully means more than a nosebleed from anybody else, really, in probably any TV show or whatever. So we do get that, but the eeriest part of the whole episode is the fact that Scully sees the apparition, and everyone else that sees the apparition dies shortly afterwards. So if you're watching the X-Files for the first time and you see that, that definitely means something. And we also have more mythology episodes coming up immediately so there's definitely a tie-in here and we just came out of a couple mythology episodes too so sticking elegy in this spot in the series could almost be a deliberate thing by the you know the creators of the show because we have a huge string of mythology episodes here and then one that's not a mythology but we see scully's nose start to bleed so on the mythometer it's definitely not a mythology episode but uh, it almost could have a you know a medium potential to be that so it's uh, you know it's, it's kind of an in-between one even though there's just no other reference to any mythology pieces at all so you know <laughs> sorry to spend too much time on that but it was just very interesting that you know Scully would get a nosebleed in that episode, which is the only episode that's not a mythology episode, in between maybe the biggest string of mythology episodes. So you get what I'm saying. For the sequelizer, this one's got a high potential for a sequel because the actual killer is still alive, even though Harold's dead and you know a lot of other people are dead, but this could definitely have a sequel going down the Monster of the Week road if you don't tie in any other mythology things and you could probably tie in Scully's nosebleed and the, the mythology to this somehow also. So it's definitely got a high potential for a sequel. Like I said, on the mythometer, it's not a mythology, but it you know it's definitely got a hint of it, so it's almost a hybrid. Call it a hybrid if you want. Compared to other TV shows, it's still not a great episode, but it's definitely a good episode. So I'd probably give it, you know, 7.5 or something. If I'm going to do rewatch of X-Files episodes, Elegy is not one of the ones that I would pick, you know, out of my first, you know, 10, 20, 50, even, whatever. If I came across it on television, I'd, I'd definitely stick with it. So, but I guess I'd say that for almost any X-Files episode. 
So I guess that's all I can think of for Elegy. Definitely a good episode. I haven't heard the other agents' files that they've sent in yet, so I'm going to go do that now. So now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has to say for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Elegy. Agents, Elegy is one of those Monster of the Week episodes that starts off with your pretty typical paranormal mystery in the cold open. In this case, it's a sighting of an apparition of a young woman in a bowling alley's pin setter. Then minutes later, she inexplicably turns up dead outside on the street. In this episode, people start seeing visions of ghosts as predictors of their own demises. But this episode's main focus isn't on the disembodied spirits, as Mulder calls them. Instead, it's on the idea of mortality, and the fact that Mulder and Scully are going to have to face and deal with Scully's own, very real, mortality, due to an inoperable, incurable, cancerous mass. When Mulder and Scully are first called to the bowling alley to investigate, there's a subtle reminder that they still don't often talk that much to each other, about what's going on in each of their heads, since Mulder still has to ask about what that look from Scully means. She's got a point. He ought to know by now, after four years. Anyway, Mulder and Scully don't seem to get any viable leads from the group of psychiatric patients they question. Though this is where they first encounter Harold Spuler. While reviewing the case files on him, Scully suffers another nosebleed. Mulder's concerned, but she assures him she's fine, goes to the washroom to clean up. That's where she gets the disturbing vision of the next victim. Scully's understandably shaken and upset, but she holds back from telling Mulder, instead, leaving to go get checked out by her doctor. In this sense, she's still falling back on medical science and trying to move past the ghostly vision she just had, trying and failing to forget it, as she still doesn't want to believe. But it turns out, Scully's belief or disbelief in disembodied spirits is only an incidental part of this equation. Scully does confide her concealed fears to a therapist, which I find encouraging. In reality, holding it all in is not the healthiest thing. She also admits this in regard to Mulder. I guess I never realized how much I rely on him before this. His passion. He's been a great source of strength that I've drawn on. Scully also suggests, in so many words, that the apparition is due to the power of suggestion, or perhaps a manifestation of her own fears. As the counselor suggests, her deep-seated fears of failing Mulder, which I think is pretty spot on. When Mulder and Scully meet back up, it's late at night at Scully's apartment, after Mulder's dealt with another death and the involvement of Harold Spuler's vision of Pintero's spirit right before death. Mulder starts into asking her for her medical expertise, before thinking to ask what her own doctor said about the cancer, 
He's concerned enough to be mentally pulled away from his television quest for the truth. Then Mulder says something pretty profound before leaving. That who better to see apparitions that peop than people who are dying as visions of their own mortality. We can tell it hits home with Scully. She doesn't even have to say anything. It's all over her face. Mulder and Scully return to the psychiatric hospital. After Nurse Inez was attacked and Harold has run off again, it soon becomes more than clear that the nurse had a pronounced violent murderous streak due to medication and is the real killer of those women. Cancer or not, Scully is able to take her down when she attacks her. Harold sadly turns up dead in an alley, and the episode closes with one of the most moving, indeed heart-wrenching displays of honesty between Mulder and Scully. It comes out that both of them are ultimately dealing with their own fear of her dying. Mulder's also frustrated, as most would be, at her withholding the truth about what she saw. To hammer the truth even harder at us, Scully has yet another death-predicting vision in the back of her car when she's alone. It's tough to get that ending scene to leave my mind for a little while. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 4.22 Elegy. Original air date May 4, 1997. Written by John Scheiben. Directed by James Charleston. What is a death omen if not a vision of our own mortality? Mulder and Scully track a series of murders that lead to a home for the mentally ill and a clue that makes no sense. Each victim has appeared as an apparition in the area where their body was found along with the words, She is me. Scheiben was inspired to write the episode based on an incident that involved his wife's father potentially seeing other beings in a room where he was dying. According to Scheiben, he was very near death and kept looking around the room, even though there were only two visitors with him. Eventually, he asked his daughter how many people were in the room. When his daughter revealed that there were only two people with him, he kept looking around the room. Scheiben was inspired by the idea that a dying person might be able to look through the cracks into the next world. Scheiben was also inspired by the 1975 film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In folklore and mythology, a ghost, sometimes known as a specter, phantom, apparition, spirit, spook, or haunt, is the soul or spirit of a dead person or animal that can appear to the living. Descriptions of ghosts vary widely from an invisible presence to translucent or barely visible wispy shapes to realistic lifelike visions. The deliberate attempt to contact the spirit of a deceased person is known as necromancy or in spiritism as a seance. The belief in manifestations of the spirits of the dead is widespread, dating back to animism or ancestor worship in pre-littered cultures. 
Certain religious practices, funeral rites, exorcisms, and some practices of spiritualism and ritual magic are specifically designed to rest the spirits of the dead. Ghosts are generally described as solitary, human-like essences that haunt particular locations, objects, or people they were associated with in life, though stories of ghostly armies and the ghosts of animals have also been recounted. A place where ghosts are reported is described as haunted and often seen as being inhabited by spirits of deceased who may have been former residents or were familiar with the property. Supernatural activity inside homes is said to be mainly associated with violent or tragic events in the building's past, such as murder, accidental death, or suicide, sometimes in the recent or ancient past. But not all hauntings are at a place of a violent death or even on violent grounds. Many cultures and religions believe the essence of a being, such as the soul, continues to exist. Some religious views argue that the spirits of those who have died have not passed over and are just trapped inside the property where their memories and energy are strong. The physician John Ferrier wrote an essay towards a theory of apparitions in 1813 in which he argued that sightings of ghosts were the result of optical illusions. Later, the French physician Alexander Jacques-François Bière de Bosmont published On Hallucinations, or the Rational History of Apparitions, Dreams, Ecstasy, Magnetism, and Somnambulism, in 1845, in which he claimed sightings of ghosts were the result of hallucinations. David Turner, a retired physical chemist, suggested that ball lighting could cause inanimate objects to move erratically. Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry wrote that there was no credible scientific evidence that any location was inhabited by spirits of the dead. Limitations of human perception and ordinary physical explanations can account for ghost sightings. For example, air pressure changes in a home causing doors to slam, or lights from a passing car reflected through a window at night. Pareidolia, an innate tendency to recognize patterns and random perceptions, is what some skeptics believe causes people to believe that they have seen ghosts. Reports of ghosts seen out of the corner of the eye may be accounted for by the sensitivity of human peripheral vision. According to Nickel, peripheral vision can easily mislead, especially late at night when the brain is tired and more likely to misinterpret sights and sounds. According to research in animalistic psychology, visions of ghosts may arise from hypnagogic hallucinations, waking dreams which are experienced in the transitional states to and from sleep. And a study of two experiments into alleged hauntings came to the conclusion that people consistently report unusual experiences in haunted areas because of environmental factors which may differ across locations. Some of these factors include the variance of local magnetic fields, size of location, and lighting level stimuli of which witnesses may not be consciously aware. Some researchers, such as Michael Persinger of Laurentian University, Canada, have speculated that changes in geomagnetic fields could stimulate the brain's temporal lobes and produce many of the experiences associated with hauntings. Sound is thought to be another cause of supposed sightings. Richard Lord and Richard Weissman have concluded that infrasound can cause humans to experience bizarre feelings in a room such as anxiety, extreme sorrow, a feeling of being watched, or even the chills. Carbon monoxide poisoning, which can cause changes in perception of the visual and auditory systems, was speculated upon as a possible explanation for haunted houses as early as 1921. In parapsychology, an apparitional experience is an anomalous quasi-perceptual experience. 
It is characterized by the apparent perception of either a living being or inanimate object without there being any material stimulus for such a perception. The person experiencing the apparition is awake, including dream visions from consideration. In scientific or academic discussion, the term apparitional experience is to be preferred to the term ghost in respect of the following points. 1. The term ghost implies that some element of the human being survives death and at least under certain circumstances can make itself perceptible to living living human beings. There are other competing explanations of apparitional experiences. 2. First-hand accounts of apparitional experiences differ in many respects from their fictional counterparts in literary or traditional ghost stories and films. And three, the content of apparitional experiences, including living beings, both human and animal, and even inanimate objects. Attempts to apply modern scientific or investigative standards to the study of apparitional experiences began with the work of Edmund Gurney, Frederick Myers, and Frank Podmore, who were leading figures in the early years of the Society for Psychical Research. Their motive, as with most of the early works of the Society, was to provide evidence for human survival after death. For this reason, they had a particular interest in what are known as crisis cases. These are cases in which a person has a quasi-perceptual experience of someone at a distance at the time of that person's death or other crisis. If the temporal coincidence of the crisis and the distant apparitional experience cannot be explained by any conventional means, then the presumption is made that some as yet unknown form of communication, such as telepathy, has taken place. While the extent to which the work of Gurney and his colleagues succeeded in providing evidence for either telepathy or survival of death is still controversial, the large collection of first-hand written accounts which resulted from the painstaking methods still constitutes a body of valuable data concerning the phenomenology of hallucinations in the sane. A notable later discussion of apparitional experiences was that of G.N.M. Terrell, also a leading member of the Society for Physical Research of his day. Terrell accepted the hallucinatory character of the experience, pointing out that it is virtually unknown for first-hand accounts to claim that apparitional figures leave any of the normal physical effects, such as footprints in the snow, that one would expect of a real person. However, Terrell develops the idea that the apparition may be a way for the unconscious part of the mind to bring consciousness information that has been paranormally acquired in crisis cases, for example. He introduces an evocative metaphor of a mental stage carpenter behind the scenes in the unconscious part of the mind and constructing the quasi-perceptual experience that eventually appears on the stage of consciousness so that it embodies paranormal information in a symbolic way A person drowning at a distance appears stoked in water, for example. The study and discussion of apparitions developed in a different direction in the 1970s with the work of Celia Green and Charles McCreary. They were not primarily interested in the question of whether apparitions could shed any light on the existence or otherwise of telepathy or in the survival question. Instead, they were concerned to analyze a large number of cases with a view to providing a taxonomy of the different types of experience viewed simply as a type of anomalous perceptual experience or hallucination. One of the points that was highlighted by their work was namely that real-life accounts of apparitional experiences differ markedly from the traditional or literary ghost story. There are some of the most notable differences, at least as indicated by their own collection of 1800 first-hand accounts. 
Subjects of apparitional experiences are by no means always frightened by the experience. Indeed, they might find them soothing or reassuring at times of crisis or ongoing stress in their lives. Spontaneous apparitional experiences tend to happen in humdrum or everyday surroundings and under conditions of low central nervous system arousal, most often in the subject's own home. By contrast, subjects who visited reputedly haunted locations in hopes of seeing a ghost are more often than not disappointed. Apparitions tend to be reported as appearing solid and not transparent. Indeed, they may be so realistic in a variety of ways as to deceive the percipient as to their hallucinatory nature. In some cases, the subject only achieves insight after the experience has ended. It is unusual for an apparitional figure to engage in any verbal interaction with the percipient. This is consistent with the finding that the majority of such experiences only involve one sense, most commonly the visual. As for now, I'd say this case is open. So the final word on elegy, I know what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of the same thing. What's out there for Elegy? The first review I picked is posted on the Reviews Out There blog by Knife Inc. This is the best review I've found, as far as one that focuses on Mulder and Scully's relationship in this episode, which I definitely think is the most important part of it. The review says, With the exception of Leonard Betts, we have yet to see a standalone episode that has much to do with Scully's cancer. Her cancer mostly shows up in the mythology, and it goes mostly forgotten in the standalones which is why I thank the X-Files, gods, or spirits, or whatever, that Elegy exists. Without it, the cancer storyline wouldn't hit so close to home, I think. Because of the absolute monster of a three-part myth arc we have coming up, it's very easy to forget the episodes in between the famous Small Potatoes and the season finale. Our previous episode, Zero Sum, was good, but the next two episodes, Elegy and Demons, are, in my opinion... Two of the most underrated ex episodes of the series. Elegy in particular is just a hauntingly gorgeous episode of television. The painfully tragic story of Harold Spuller and the girls he can't save is a quiet meditation on death and loss, something Mulder and Scully are very close to facing. I don't remember liking Elegy quite so much the first time I saw it as I did when I watched it most recently. I certainly wasn't planning on giving it as high a score as I did. Whatever flaws it does have, and it has a few, it gives us the most emotional exploration of Scully's cancer since Memento Mori, and takes a rather dark turn from the sad yet hopeful message that Memento Mori brought us. Namely, Scully is dying, and right now there's nothing at all she, Mulder, or anyone can do about it. The episode doesn't scream this at you. No one comes out and says, Scully, you're dying. But if we are to believe what Mulder says about seeing ghostly apparitions, and I think it's a safe bet to say that Scully does believe him, at least part of her does, then what Scully sees in the bathroom is a painful and quiet reminder that time is running out, and the seemingly inevitable is approaching. Mulder doesn't hold her hand in this one either. 
we don't get the gentle molder at the end of Memento Mori, holding a sick and exhausted Scully in a warm, hopeful embrace. Instead, we get an angry, maybe frustrated is the better word, Mulder who is facing the same situation. Scully's dying, and there's nothing he can do about it. Although Mulder probably suspects that long before Scully tells him about the apparition, when she gets another nosebleed of doom, he just chooses to tread lightly, at least until the end. Mulder and Scully, as I'm sure you've realized by now, don't talk much. You've heard it a million times, their relationship is largely unspoken and can't really be put into words. But this time, Mulder thinks, is the exception. Scully needs to talk to him about this. Even if she doubts what she sees, doubts seeing the ghosts, she can't doubt what it means, and Mulder knows that. Scully seeing and not believing the apparition is not, as you might initially think, the most important detail for Mulder. Rather, it's the fact that she didn't tell him about it that frustrates him. Mulder doesn't care what Scully believes. He cares about Scully. And Scully, though she momentarily expresses doubt towards Mulder's reasons for wanting her honesty, knows this. The truth Mulder wants from Scully has nothing to do with science or aliens or believing this or that. It's the truth that's locked in the meaning behind all of those things. The truth Scully hides within herself, what she can't bring herself to face. Perhaps somewhat strangely, this ending conversation between them, which is admittedly one of my favorite scenes of the season, makes me think of the ending of Season 2's Irresistible and the famous hug. Mulder lifts Scully's head up, helps her cry. Here, Mulder is essentially doing the same thing. He's just doing it from a place of greater pain and frustration, because he knows he's about to lose someone he loves so much. As far as my two cents, this is a terrific review that casts so much light on how important these two have become in each other's lives, what they mean to each other, and it pulls the tragedy of the cancer arc out of the background. It's no longer something Scully, and by extension we the audience can minimize by focusing on the case at hand. Indeed, it's a case that hits too close to home for both our heroes, and we can't deny how indescribably horrible it would be if Mulder lost Scully. We longtime fans know the cancer isn't going to win, but this episode still makes us face the complete and devastating possibility of otherwise. My second chosen review is posted on Apartment 42 Revisited by Max and Redhika. Redhika writes this, Not shockingly, as its title suggests, Elegy is a bit of a melancholy outing. While there is a spooky, initially intriguing mystery at the center of this Monster of the Week episode, its standout qualities really lie in Gillian Anderson's performance, as a character grappling with her mortality, as well as the exploration of Mulder and Scully's partnership, providing it with a bit of extra emotional heft. We meet Angie Pintero, bowling alley owner, and the autistic Harold Spoller, who works for him. After telling Harold to go home for the day, Pintero ends up spotting a woman wedged inside a pin setter and runs out to get help. He realizes a crowd has gathered around the body of a woman who looks exactly like the woman he just saw in the bowling alley. When Mulder and Scully come in to investigate, they uncover the words, She is me, on the bowling lane, near where Pintero saw the woman, adding to the mystery. There have been other murders of a similar nature as well. The agents trace an anonymous 911 about one of the murders to a psychiatric institute, where they meet Harold, who seems agitated. Scully is suspicious of him, and while going to the restroom to tend to a nosebleed, she spots a ghostly woman. Of course, Mulder delivers the news that another body has been found. 
Mulder eventually realizes Harold met each of the murdered women while at work. Harold, who is with him at this time, freaks out, and we realize he's seeing Pintero's ghost. Sure enough, Pintero has died of a heart attack. And so, Mulder theorizes that every person who saw an apparition was about to die, which makes him think Harold is next. Scully is justifiably upset by this, but won't tell Mulder why. The main mystery at the center of this episode definitely falls apart by the end. Just typing out the explanation feels a bit silly, even though it manages to play out better on the screen than it does on the page. And while Harold does evoke some sympathy in me, I'm not entirely in love with the portrayal of the characters at the psychiatric center. It just feels rather cliche and typical for TV, though I won't profess to have a professional opinion about this. Max has this to add, John Shebane, who wrote this episode, was chiefly inspired by the classic film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson, and it shows. Inez is definitely the descendant of Nurse Ratchet from the film, and we certainly feel terrible for poor Harold Spuller as the target of her machinations. We've spoken quite a bit about how the best Monster of the Week episodes reflect our main characters, their current situations, as well as the relationship between Mulder and Scully. An elegy backs up this thesis explicitly. As Radhika mentioned, this outing is positively saturated with the specter of Scully's cancer, even going as far as to see a counselor to help her process her thoughts and emotions. I'm very much reminded of the role actress Patricia Wedding played in the early seasons of Alias as a CIA therapist who helped Jennifer Garner's Sidney Bristow through the various shocks that turned her world upside down. While Sydney wasn't dealing with a terminal illness, she and Scully are powerful women whose jobs require a level of composure and vigilance, as well as the fact that both of them are highly committed to their employers, though Sydney has a social life that is now so foreign to Scully. Scully rarely gives herself permission to be vulnerable, and when we saw the cracks in her resolve begin to open in Memento Mori, the rarity of those emotions is what gave her tearful admissions to Mulder such power. Mulder's attitude in this episode is definitely a growth factor for the character, especially given his rather dismissive behavior in Never Again that caused a bit of a rupture in the usually strong working and personal relationship of our heroes. At the end of that episode, Scully voiced her frustrations that were percolating inside her for a long time, so it's definitely a relief to see Mulder soften here. For so long, Mulder's obsessive crusade isolated and cut him off from people within and out of the Bureau, leading to a rather pathetic life of tin hat conspiracies and phone sex hotlines that Eddie Van Blunt commented on a couple of episodes ago. Scully was forced on him by superiors intent on putting nails in the X-Files coffin, and the series has been in part the story of Mulder learning to not be the lone wolf anymore. Scully theorized that Nurse Innes was targeting Harold because she was envious of the love he had for the women that would become her victims. Harold can be seen as an analog to Mulder, a beset individual shaped by trauma, who has learned to reach out to others as well. It is this complex of emotions that gives their final conversation of this episode the weight Radhika ascribed to it, and I agree with her that them confiding in each other, again, is the most important takeaway of the episode, especially as we are approaching some of the most crucial episodes of the middle third of the X-Files. I didn't talk much about the actual case of the week, probably because the case did too good of a job in foregrounding Mulder and Scully's existential issues, as well as the fact that it is a pretty boilerplate affair. 
I did, though, get heavy Are You Afraid of the Dark vibes from it, the old Nickelodeon horror anthology series. The aesthetic and structure of the story is a perfect fit for that show. Cheesy ghost special effects and all. Regardless, LOG did a lot of heavy lifting in the Mulder and Scully department, setting the table for the season's close. So what do I think? I agree with both these reviewers that this episode is another step forward as far as Mulder and Scully's character development and relationship. They've gone for four years without really talking about what's going on with them on an emotional level. And until now, neither of them has stared this grave cancer reality hard in the face. One of the most memorable, and I think the most heartbreaking, scenes is when Scully's finally alone and lets the tears come when she's sitting in her car at night. The heaviness isn't lessened when she gets the brief scare of another apparition, yet another reminder of her own mortality. Be sure to check out both these reviews, I'll be putting up the links to them on our show notes page. My final word on Elegy? You can believe what you want to believe, but you can't hide the truth from me, because if you do, then you're working against me, and yourself. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile Ready to Air The Music Man and Throne for a Loop. After the cameras stop rolling, the X Files post production crew starts rocking. Once the editors have finished fine-tuning their cuts, an episode moves on to the next stage, sound. We have what we call a spotting session with Paul Rabwin and the writers and myself and the sound effects supervisor, Gross says. We sit down and go through scene by scene and discuss all the sound effects and dialogue work that's going to be needed. Once that's done, the sound effects supervisor and sound editors and the composer and the music editor take over and I'm on to my next episode. Composer Mark Snow sits down at his keyboard once he's received a copy of the final edit and a fax from the music editor, Jeff Charbonneau. He types out the music notes, or what they call the spotting notes, which indicate where each piece of music in the score will start and stop. He faxes that to me and I look that over, then start to work, Snow says. Snow takes three to five days to complete his score, working in a private studio behind his home in Santa Monica. He creates and records the music on a synclavier, a digital keyboard that can mimic dozens of instruments and sounds. Then the producers and directors come over, whoever is in town at that point, sometimes Chris Carter, consulting producer Ken Horton, co-executive producer Frank Spotnitz, and the writer and the director if they're not in Vancouver, Snow says. They all watch the episode with me, and they'll have little comments, fixes, or changes. Such comments, known as notes, are a common part of the X-Files post-production process. In Snow's case, the notes are usually requests to tone down or beef up a particular musical passage. Mostly they're very minimal, the composer says, like, we don't need music for this scene, or this could start a little earlier, or we need an extra sting here. 
a sting. It's a musical accent. Someone pops out of a room and bah! Like that, Snow explains. To say that the X-Files has a distinctive musical sound is like saying the Simpsons has a distinctive look. It would be hard to mistake it for anything else out there. It's more atmospheric and moody than out-front, big, thematic John Williams music, says Mark Snow, who knows more about X-Files music than anyone else since he's written the score for every single episode. Though Snow has developed and perfected the show's unique sound, he didn't invent it alone. Before Snow came on board, music editor Jeff Charbonneau was working with Chris Carter to create something unique for the series pilot. I got a call from Fox to come over and meet Chris and look at the pilot and help him do a preliminary score, what they call a temp score for marketing, so they could show it to the network and let them decide whether or not they wanted to buy the show, Charbonneau remembers. Chris happened to like minimalist music and thought that might work. So I experimented with that and with Odd Texture's ambient music. The result was music that fit the mysterious, suspenseful atmosphere of the pilot and paved the way for snow. Mark came on after the pilot was bought. He looked at the show and the tent music, got the idea, and essentially expanded upon that concept, made it more interesting, Charbonneau says. It's a good thing Snow's music is so popular, there sure is a lot of it in every episode. I think The X-Files probably has more music than any other television show in existence. At times, we've literally had 45 minutes of music in a 45-minute show, says Charbonneau, who helps decide which scenes need music and which don't. We average around 30 to 35 minutes worth of music per episode. The typical TV show has about 15 to 20 minutes. According to Snow, the main hurdle week after week isn't keeping up with the workload, which doubled last year when he started scoring Millennium. The real challenge is creating music that remains true to the tradition of the show without becoming redundant. Since I'm the only one scoring the show, if I keep repeating things, it gets really stale. So even though the sound is similar and my approach is similar, each show is different, he says. I never repeat myself, or I try not to anyway. Offbeat episodes like Small Potatoes and The Field Where I Died help Snow stay fresh by giving him the chance to create new sounds. The music in Small Potatoes was somewhat comic, and had a whimsical tongue-in-cheek quality that I think only three other shows had. Jose Chung, Humbug, and Clyde Bruckman, Snow says. The Field Where I Died had a very melodic score. Usually emotional scores aren't that common in The X-Files, but this was an example of playing with a beautiful melody that went over really well. Sometimes one syllable can make all the difference. It doesn't have to be. Hey, X-Files supervising sound editor Theory Courturier tells actress Christine Cavanaugh, it can be, oh, Agent Mulder. Make the O a little shorter, producer Paul Rablin throws in. I think that'll help it. Kavanaugh nods. The shot cues up. Agent Mulder, or someone who looks just like him, is walking into a hospital room with a bouquet of flowers. Oh, Agent Mulder, Kavanaugh says. It's good, but there was a little too much surprise there, Rablin says. The shot appears again on the studio's large screen. Kavanaugh turns back to the microphone once again. Oh, Agent Mulder, she says. Perfect. Welcome to the world of looping, where O's, hays, breaths, and mutters are crafted to perfection. Sometimes the dialogue as shot is hard to hear, Rablin explains, or after the fact we might decide to put in a line somewhere that will make the cut work better. That's the case with Kavanaugh's unscripted exclamation. Inserted into a scene in Season four's Small Potatoes, it covers a moment of silence and helps the shot of Mulder, 
Actually, Mulder impersonator Eddie Van Blunt worked more smoothly. Kavanaugh's an old pro at looping. As a veteran of animation, she's the chirpy voice behind Babe's talkative pig, she spent thousands of hours in looping studios. I'll do babies, I'll do animals, I'll do anything, the actress says. The next actor to step up to the looping plate doesn't have the same kind of confidence, however. I should warn you guys ahead of time that I'm terrible at this, says writer-actor Darren Morgan, who played Van Blunt. That's okay, we have no taste. Rablin jokes. After Morgan's fears prove unfounded, he quickly nails a tricky line of dialogue. You're a damn good-looking man. And ugh, a few heavy sighs. Six members of the loop group swarm into the room. A consortium of men, more than 50 actors who specialize in providing background voices for TV shows and movies. The group has a long history with the X-Files. On every show, we will use five or six of them, Rablin explains. We vary them. One actor might do four or five episodes in a season. For Small Potatoes, the actors provided subdued background voices for scenes in a police station and hospital. They get to pump up the volume, however, when it's time to record the outraged reactions of young parrots listening to a doctor try to explain why their babies have tails. There's a lot of shouting and name-calling, but it's nothing like the ruckus the loop group raised in Max. That show was very busy, Rablin says. For the plane crash, we had eight people dying in here. Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone. First off, we got a very awesome post on our Facebook page by Ramona White. It says, I had a very late 90s slash early 2000s day yesterday as I spent it playing Sims 2. Who knew you could give your college students piercings? Not me and listening to your podcast. I also drank a lot of coffee and wore a plaid flannel shirt. I only recently discovered and started listening to your podcast. I began at the beginning, and I'm enjoying it very much. It's great to be able to start with your very first episode and listen to the show develop and take shape. I'm afraid, though, that it's increasing my already prominent geekiness, because although I have seen all the X-Files episodes several times, I haven't done so recently enough to be able to quote from them. That has now changed. Just today, I said to a coworker, that's the very basis of science. You begin with an impertinent question and end up with a pertinent answer. At least, that's what Mulder says. I probably didn't get the Mulder quote exactly right, I know. Luckily, this coworker is used to me comparing situations to those from the original Star Trek and its attendant films, as well as Firefly and Star Wars, so he wasn't distressed. Just wait until I decorate my office, like Mulder's. Thanks again for your contribution to my weirdness. The truth is still out there. Thanks for making the show and for encouraging us all to keep looking for it. P.S. I mentioned your podcast on the beauty website, Zovain, where I am a frequent commenter. And I hope some of the readers show up and become listeners as well. It couldn't hurt, right? Oh yeah, that scene in Conduit is one of my favorite Mulder and Scully exchanges in Season 1. 
Of course, this case is definitely an X-File worth pursuing, because the lizard baby wasn't born anywhere near Lake Okaboji. I'm half-joking here, I've just always gotten a kick out of how Mulder says that, and Scully's resulting expression. But yeah, great season one episode, in my opinion. Anyway, awesome post, Ramona. Love it. You're more than welcome to post anytime. We'd love to hear more of what you think as you catch up with all of our episodes. Thanks so much. Only one other thing for me to mention this time around. If any of you would like to see X-Files Truth join Tumblr, go to our Twitter, at X-Files underscore Truth, and start liking or retweeting that pinned tweet at the top. I'm leaving that open for now. That's what I've got this time. As always, the truth is still out there. Go find it. X-Files Truth Scully fears for her partner's well-being after he suffers a mental blackout while investigating an alien abductee case and becomes the prime suspect in a brutal double murder. Remember to check out the website if you want to find out about the music that we used for the episode. That's xfilestruth.com and leave us a message if you want while you're there. But the most important thing you could do is really the iTunes thing. Just search for X-Files Truth and scroll down to podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you next month for Demons. Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th Century Fox.